Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we're joined by Stephen Adley Girgis, Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright and co-creator of Netflix's The Get Down. We'll also talk about all the shows about music on TV this year, from vinyl to roadies to The Get Down. That's coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Zoller Seitz. Hey, Gazelle. Hey, Matt. And Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hello, everyone. Hello, Jen. So today... We're going to have a a long conversation with the co-creator of The Get Down. And just to preface that, we wanted to just talk a little bit about this curious little trend that's been happening on television this year, because The Get Down is not is not alone in terms of, you know, it's 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 one of a trend we've been seeing in this year, this year in particular, with shows that try and take on the, the music industry from different angles. The most buzzed about show of the year early on was HBO's Vinyl, mm-hmm. uh, and that was uh, about rock in the 70s. Then this summer, earlier this summer, we had Showtime's Roadies, which was about a modern-day group of roadies touring with bands, and now we have Netflix's The Get Down, which is about the birth of hip-hop in the 70s in the Bronx. The thing about these three shows in particular is they're all created by hugely famous filmmakers yes. coming to TV. Vinyl was Martin Scorsese's project. Rhodey was Cameron Crowe's. And The Get Down is Baz Luhrmann. There are other shows. There's Empire, the nighttime soap about the hip-hop industry. We have Atlanta coming up on right. FX. And, and Nashville, although obviously, I Nashville, guess it's in, in the process of transitioning to a new network, I guess. Yeah. But, but yeah, that too. That was probably the first that really yeah. kick-started at least the soapy take on (laughs) um but yeah i mean we've seen some of these shows struggle a little bit with being able to take on this kind of huge subject matter um i think vinyl there was so much hype around that show and it was such a huge production it was a hundred million dollar production and hbo i believe renewed it for its second season before it even Premiered. And then they unrenewed it. And then it. they unrenewed it. Which they unrenewed it. They, and they happened. fired. They fired Terrence Winter, who was uh, probably the the real showrunner, ultimately. Right. Um, Scorsese, you know, obviously is a big stylistic influence, but he wasn't. He wasn't really that involved with Boardwalk Empire, which was Terrence Winter's show after the pilot. Um, and uh, and then they were going to move on without Terrence Winter, and then they decided not to. And it was really kind of it was remarkable. It was remarkable that they made that decision after sinking so much money into it. Usually they let a show like this go at least another season. Yeah. Just to amortize those costs of recreating New York in the 70s. And, you know, somebody's got to justify the expense of all those wide lapeled shirts. (laughs) (laughs) And it's interesting to me that in just in terms of um, in terms of quality, uh, I would say that the get down, at least in my opinion, is is a better show than both vinyl and roadies. I mean, at least it. up to what I've watched so far. And Empire obviously had a much bigger audience. It was on a, a, a major network as opposed to HBO or Showtime. But it's interesting. It feels like these shows about rock and roll are having a hard time figuring out what they are. And shows about hip-hop, uh, which is, I, I would say, is the dominant genre in pop music. Uh, you know, rock and roll is sort of dead in a lot of ways. Um, those are the shows that seem to be having a better time of it creatively and um, 
and we don't know yet how the get down will do with audiences, but no, we Empire don't. Certainly has but I, 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 my early prediction is that you know Netflix will. <laughs> I'm so bad at predictions. I, I'm always wrong, but I'm just going to say, like, I would be shocked if this show ran more than a season. Yeah, I mean, because it's so big, it's so expensive. There were so many troubles behind the scenes, and also, I'm not sure. I have, I've only, I've only seen half of it. I guess everybody's only seen half of it on the critical side, but I don't know what they would possibly do with the season two. Yeah, and we'll get mm-hmm. more into that with with the co-creator Stephen Adley Girgis after this. But yeah, I think the get down will as Baz Luhrmann projects go, will probably be a bit divisive. You know, so, but... All of his projects yeah. are divisive. <laughs> to put it mildly, yeah. Um, but, you know, this was, yeah, this was another project. It was a $120 million production, the biggest, the most expensive show Netflix has ever made, beating out Marco Polo. And that creates extra expectation about what these shows should be. Right. Also because they're, with the hip-hop storyline, this isn't something we've really seen in terms of the birth of hip hop. Well, that's another that's another issue that I think uh, that I, I think <laughs> show if you make a show about the music industry, any music industry, whether it's whether it's rock and roll, hip hop, country or whatever, you're going to get brutalized by fans. Brutalized by fans of the music. Like you may have fans who are there for the characters and the melodrama, but anybody who's into the music is going to nitpick you to death. And I say this as somebody who like I'm a film and television critic. And my people are nitpicky, but 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 even by the standards of of you know this bunch of nerds, like music criticism is a whole other level. <laughs> and the whole time vinyl yeah. during the short short life of vinyl, I think there were probably more pieces written about what vinyl gets wrong about X, Y, or Z than there were actual like assessments of the artistic quality uh, of the yeah. show. It was all like, well, I was a you know, <laughs> I was in New York in the 70s and nothing like that ever happened to me. Like, who cares? Right. You know, like, is I, the show good or not? I, I like that show better than most people. I think as bad HBO shows go, this show is 10 times the show the newsroom ever was. But uh, that's a minority opinion. <laughs> well, I think <laughs> I think that these shows are taking on kind of a, a really risky, difficult task. And, you know, two big issues that I've seen is focus yeah. and cliches. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many cliches in the music industry. And I think that's what bugged me a little bit about vinyl, which was this earnestness about something we've seen so many times and this sense of it's all about the music that kind of got repeated. Right. That I think you want something a little bit more than that. When you think about music, when I think about music, I think about something that's cool. You know? Right, right, right. Um, <laughs> and and I think I think that's a hard... You know, when you're trying to tell the history of something, and in Vinyl's particular case, you know, it also had the parallel issue of having a white male lead character of the type that we've seen many times before. Right, that was a problem. So, with, I think the get down, what it has going for it is really it's two young leads who are just total newcomers, really wonderful actors, and, you know, when it's, I, I found myself enjoying the get down most when we were kind of looking closely at their storylines. Um, yes. But there's still, you know, there's a lot going on in the get down, and I think that... It's a lot, and I think that anybody who goes into the show expecting it to be anything faintly resembling history of hip-hop in New York in the late 70s is going to be disappointed. It's not that. It's just not that. I mean, it's is a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale. I mean, there's a hip-hop soundtrack some of the time, but it's a fairy tale. And this bears about as much relation to New York in the Bronx in the 19, late 1970s as 
I don't know, strictly ballroom does to the actual ballroom dance scene. Yeah. You know, like, and that's just, that's Baz Luhrmann. That's what he does. Like right. He does, he does these, these crazy, kitschy, sometimes tacky, sometimes enthralling um, musical myths. That's his thing. Let's go around the room. Sure. Pre- previous to watching the show, what were people's feelings about Baz Luhrmann in general? Love Romeo and Juliet. Um, love, I I wouldn't say love Moulin Rouge, but I, I'm more on the side of those who enjoyed it than those who didn't. Um, mm-hmm. I did not care for The Great Gatsby. Um, and <laughs> I think that, yeah, so I'm, you know, I always hope I have hope when I watch a Baz Luhrmann project that it'll be great because I remember the feeling of watching Romeo and Juliet and there's nothing else that like it. He's one of a kind. I'm always rooting for him, but he frustrates me. He frustrates me a lot. And eventually he often wears me down. Like the first time I saw Moulin Rouge, I came out with a splitting headache (laughs) and it was mainly because of the editing. Yeah. He cannot hold a shot for longer than three seconds. And sometimes he'll do a thing where the camera is moving towards someone and he'll cut away to somebody stationary and then he'll cut back to the camera still moving towards that person. It's like it's be, like being in a car driven by a student driver who, who, who is who, whose foot is heavy on the brake. You know, yeah. like it's really like it's crazy yeah. that he's a musical filmmaker whose whose rhythms are so unmusical a lot of the time. But the spectacle of it is incredible. The humor is really weird. Um, John Leguizamo in Moulin Rouge is one of the strangest performances I've ever seen in a film of that budget level. (laughs) (laughs) You know, my favorite movie of his is always going to be Strictly Ballroom. I think that film is perfect. But I was watching, uh, oddly, The Great Gatsby, which was on TNT just the other night with my dad. And uh, he fell asleep at a certain point and his finger hit the mute button. And I watched the second half of it as a silent film. And I thought, wow, this is better than I remembered. (laughs) (laughs) He's got an eye. He's definitely got an eye. How about you, Jen? I mean, I, I, I liked Strictly Ballroom a lot. I liked Romeo and Juliet a lot. I fucking loved Moulin Rouge. Like, I did not come out with a headache. I came out just exhilarated the first time I saw it. Even though, Matt, I totally know what you're saying about the, the student driver thing. Yeah. Um, I just, I loved the just audacity and the ambition and the, the music that he chose to use. I just And how sincere it is. It. It's, um, it's corny. It's really corny. Yeah. I love corny. Yeah, I, yeah. I love corny. Like, go His ahead. Heart just is be so corny. Big. Yeah, be corny. He's got be a corny. heart as big as a, as a fake elephant, and I love that about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, like Australia, I, I wasn't a big fan of, and the, and then the I keep Great forgetting Gatsby, about that one. <laughs> yeah, isn't that convenient how we all forget that that happened? Uh, and then the Great Gatsby, I felt I almost felt like it, it needed to either be more Baz Luhrmann or it, like it felt almost more restrained for what he was trying, what he I, usually does because of the um, you know yeah. I'm sure trying to be reverential to the source material. The Great Gatsby to me is just so antithetical to what Baz Luhrmann's style is. It should be mm-hmm. so restrained that seeing it in that context like took all the superficial elements of the book instead of the actual layer beneath it. I and that's what like, bothered me I about felt it. like when that movie yeah. calmed down, when it became more of a traditional adaptation of the novel, I thought it was excellent. Yeah. Like that whole long mm-hmm. scene in the hotel room was, the, I've seen a lot of different versions of Gatsby and that was the best one. I thought, and I thought the ending was genuinely powerful, and and it was only the stuff where the, it turns into Who Framed Roger Rabbit with these CGI cars driving to CGI cities and stuff <laughs> that I was like, come on, really, right. really, and and this this show definitely has elements of that too. I mean, they, there's 
there's a few moments where I'm like looking at these uh, obviously CGI subway cars with this uh, graffiti that's done with uh, Photoshop or whatever they used, and 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 cut in with documentary footage from 1970s news, probably local news programs or something, and going, who is this for? And the yeah. answer is it's for Baz Luhrmann, <laughs> <laughs> which is a perfectly acceptable <laughs> answer. One thing I do like about what the show does in relation to other shows about music that we've seen is oftentimes, you know, with shows that deal with creative genius and discovery, it can get a little cheesy where you have these light bulb moments where in vinyl, Richie Finestra is in a concert and he's like, oh yeah, I've discovered this, you know, like this this is like, they try to express everything. And then he stands there with his mouth open for what felt like 10 minutes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Whereas on the get down, I feel like they at least try to really show you the process of like trying to like this group of um, young kids forming this fantastic four plus one group of like their whole process and kind of the moments that they when they earn it when they get to that moment of revelation feels a little bit more earned to me right i was i was going to say the same thing like it, it, it there's this whole idea that um i think other people have talked about that there's like superheroes in this uh and it really is to me it's like an origin story um an origin story about uh, Ezekiel, the main character, and an origin story about hip hop, and like you said, Matt, not necessarily very accurate to what it really was like. Um, it, it is a fairy tale, but it's a, but it has that kind of element to me where uh, I really like watching them discover. Like, there's a whole scene with Grandmaster Flash and the crayon, and and how he, you know, uses that. That there's a sense of life and discovery in it. That in some of the other music shows, it's like they're not really about the discovery as much as they're about all the tangential things that happen in the music business. And I like that the get down is sort of watching young kids discover, wow, this is how this is how I go from turntable to turntable. This is how I can mix that with, you know, my, the rhymes that I've come up with. Um, I think that gives it a certain joy that maybe some of the other ones don't have. I, I liked also, and, and this is, you know, the only the only things probably that this show has in common with uh, Stranger Things is the period setting and the fact that they cast actual teenagers as teenagers. Yeah. And I think that really, really, really helps. Like, I really felt like, I don't know how old all of these actors are, but they no, didn't seem... very young. But it wasn't a situation where you're like, why am I looking at a bunch of 28-year-olds playing high school kids? And it helps sell the innocence and the earnestness and the sincerity and everything. So in our interview with Stephen a little later, you know, he talks about how he would like to do more seasons so that we get further into the 90s and you kind of see the story complete because... Because... He feels like with these types of shows and films and art, you need to ha- be saying something about the present moment rather than just nostalgia, rather than just kind of this looking back at this past with these ro- rose-colored glasses or whatever. Right. Um, and I think that is something that bo- that you can can easily be done in these types of shows where you are looking back at this idealized era and it is inevitably going to be tinged with nostalgia and. I I'm cur- I would be curious to see how the get down kind of develops further into the decades if it gets that chance to. And I think that one show that does this really well that hasn't premiered yet, but I just watched screeners of, is Atlanta, Donald Glover's FX show. I watched the first four episodes and I just I'm not gonna say much about it, but I just think it's brilliant. And it Oh great. It focuses more on kind of the human and social elements of its story and it's not, you know, it's not trying to tell the entire story of an industry, but it it kind of weaves in references to um, to rap kind of seamlessly, and it's 
It's about the rap scene in Atlanta, but it's also about these people and their social context and and it's not being told with wide eyes. It's just, I, I was really impressed by it. I think it's going to be a big show for this fall. So the music show is not going away. It's, it's not going away. I also think, you know, I, what do you guys think about, you know, with documentary series becoming bigger, you know, with, in terms of true crime? I feel like that's a good opportunity for music to kind of tell these episodic stories. I would it, say yes and no, because there's a problem with the music documentary as it has as it has shaped up in the last four or five years, which is a lot of these music documentaries are being made is basically stealth advertisement for an entertainment conglomerate's mm. catalog. And even something as noble minded as uh, Twenty Feet from Stardom, you know, or something like that, or you know, an Amy Winehouse uh, documentary. Um, there's music clearance rights that are involved, and often what you get is, not always, but often what you get is sort of a, oh, gee, weren't they wonderful, isn't it a shame they're dead, and here's a bunch of music you can go buy. And I would really rather not see more music documentaries if that's the kind they're going to see. And unfortunately, because music rights holders are so incredibly tough with how much they charge and, and what hoops you got to go through, and sometimes even demanding a certain amount of editorial control if the rights are in the hands of the people, you know, the families or the estates of, of some of these songwriters or performers. What you end up with is just basically a long memorial service with a great soundtrack, and uh, I don't want that. Like, I'd, I'd rather see them deal with, if they're going to deal with music history, deal with it in a semi-fantastic context. Because then maybe you might actually be able to tell the truth in a coded way. Mm -hmm. That's just my that's just my feeling about it. Like I think that with a true crime documentary, everything is public domain ultimately. Like you can pull from transcripts, you can interview witnesses, you can you know you get footage from television news and so forth. But a lot of it is going to be stuff that you don't have to pay for, and you have much more editorial freedom in terms of what you can say. Whereas you can't you can't build an artistic a critical thesis about. Elvis Presley for your documentary about Elvis Presley unless you've cleared the music rights because if it's an Elvis documentary with no Elvis music what's the point yeah I mean I do think it is a little easier maybe um, when you're not dealing with one specific artist if you're looking at a, a time period or a genre or something like that there's you're still gonna have those same issues but at least you, you don't have to like deal directly with getting cooperation from Michael Jackson's family or whatever right, it is yeah. um, but but <laughs> Because I would love to see that documentary. <laughs> I would totally love <laughs> to see Jackson that. Michael Jackson story. But on the other hand, even more than I would like to see that, I would like to see another season of, of uh, Ryan Murphy's American Crime Story that deals with the, with the uh, Michael Jackson case, and then they get to bring back Johnny Cochran. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a brilliant that's idea. A great idea. That's what I want. I just want to see, basically, I just want the Johnny Cochran show. <laughs> like, let's see, like, make a list of major cases that Johnny Cochran was involved in, and let's just see that. American Cochran story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, coming up next, we're going to talk a lot more about the get down with Stephen Adley Gierkes. What a get down. What's the get down? You don't know what the get down is? You're a natural and you don't know who Grandmaster Flash is? Oh, shit. All right, punks. Y'all want to go to the flyest secret underground party in the entire Bronx? You follow me. You decide. We're joined here today by Stephen Adley Girgis 
Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright of Between Riverside and Crazy, and most recently, co-creator of Netflix's new series, The Get Down. Stephen, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, just to get started, we wanted to just know a little bit about how you got involved with this show. I know Boz Lerman, the co-creator, had been kind of thinking about this idea for, what was it, about a decade? Yeah, that's right. That's what I hear. Um, you know, my real love is, you know, theater. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I had won this award, and I was up at Yale, and I was uh, happy because it came with money. You know, and I was like, all right, I'm not going to deal with TV or film. I'm just going to, you know, write my plays, work with kids. And then I get an email from Baz, who I never met. I didn't even know. Maybe it's a fake email, you know. It's like <laughs> Baz Lerman. And, you know, he invited me to come and have a chat with him. So I did. And um, I just kind of fell in love with the guy uh, pretty much instantly. And then when I found out, that he wanted to write about, you know, growing up in New York in the 70s, which is, you know, what I did and a lot of other people did, and a coming-of-age story. I remember I left the meeting, and I was, like, so excited on one hand, but on the other hand, I was like, all right, it looks like I'm going to do TV. You mentioned that you grew up in New York in the 70s, obviously the same setting that the show deals with. Um, how much of that informed your approach to developing the series? I mean, were you were you interested in hip hop from the very early stages yourself when you were growing up in New York? Oh yeah, I remember eighth grade when uh, Rappers Delight dropped, and I mean, it didn't matter who you were if you couldn't recite all the lyrics to Rappers Delight, like you know, you were not cool, you know. So uh. everybody, you know, immediately memorized the song and. So that was a really exciting thing. And also just growing, growing up in New York, you know, and telling a coming-of-age story, you know, uh, there's a lot of um, personal elements. Uh, all the writers that I work with, like, I was really interested in learning their personal stories. I mean, some like you, Seth Rosenfeld, who's a great writer. He's one of the guys that influenced me to start writing. But I found that the more I would learn, I could learn about the people who are going to be creating the series, the more it's going to unfold itself into the show. And even with Baz, because I don't know, have you guys met Baz before? Year, years ago, yes. I expected him to be born in, like, into the room on a giant clamshell with like animated birds <laughs> around him. <laughs> yeah, he kind of walks in and out of rooms with like a puff of smoke, and there's this whole kind of wizard of Baz element <laughs> to him. But even with Baz, you know, it became... It, it, was, it became really obvious to me. I was like, all right, the trick to doing this thing right is to learn about who Baz really is because everyone is telling their own story subconsciously, whether, you know, whether they know it or not. Me growing up, you know, I grew up on the Upper West Side, but, you know, but all my days and early evenings were school was up in Harlem. So I was kind of vaulting between two worlds at an early age and, and trying to figure out how to figure, how to, uh, how to fit in, you know? And, and I was, I guess, smart, and I tested well. But being smart wasn't always a good credential on the street, you know, where, you know, if you were, um, you know, if you could jump high or get the girl or this or that, that's what made you cool. And I think everyone has some of that in them. And, uh, and certainly a lot of that is in the character of Ezekiel. 
I am curious how you interwove all these narratives. You know, you have these personal stories of Ezekiel and Mylene and their paths that you're following, but then you also have all this historical political context and the crime that's happening in the area. What was that process like in terms of how you wrote it? Did you write each episode kind of as an episode or did you write them as scenes and then kind of piece it together? Every episode was written as an episode and there was, you know, ultimately, you know, uh, an idea behind it that hopefully, you know, advanced the story. I mean, for me, it was about the kids, you know, uh, mm-hmm. our coming of age stories is what I love. Even my plays where the characters are past the age where they should have already come of age, they're trying to come of age. And I think that we sort of zeroed in about like, at the end of the day, this is going to be about the kids going to be about, you know, the relationship between uh, these two boys and and then this this young girl, and to build out from, from there. What made everybody excited in the room was always talking about the kids and their journey. And now, in turn, a big problem was that we had to fill out the canvas with adults. So, you know, we have actors like, you know, Jimmy Smith and Gene Carlo Esposito, who are used to playing leads, who are used to doing the heavy lifting. And here is in a situation where they're basically supporting players. Um, and fortunately, they were really excited about the project and the idea and believed in it, and they were sort of willing to, willing to do that. Yeah, the kids are really amazing. And uh, Justice Smith, I think, is probably going to be the breakout star. Um, he's just mesmerizing to watch. Yeah, I I think we kind of fell in love with Justice right away, and we didn't know which role he would play, but we knew that that we wanted that. You know the the poem that he recites in the classroom to the teacher? Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask about that. All right, so, I mean, that poem, like, Justice got that poem, like, probably at one or two in the morning. And 12 hours later, he got it memorized. I mean, I just assume that I have to cut away a lot because I'm like, you know, this kid's not going to be able to mm-hmm. learn two pages. And, you know, he had it memorized and off book and, and full, you know, and emotionally full. And the same thing, uh, that breakup scene with, uh, with Horizon, you know, that was a scene that we reshot. And again, you know, I, I wrote that scene in the middle of the night, and, you know, and the next day he had it learned and, and was, fully alive and he found the humor as well as the pathos and yeah he's a special he's a special kid those are my two favorite scenes in the pilot because there's just so much emotion there and um that both on the page and just in his performance yeah and i think a lot of actors you know handling that kind of poetry could could sound you know not as natural as he's able to to make it sound like it just it just works perfectly when this project was first announced, and I saw some teasers and things for it, I think I sort of expected it to be something more like uh, a less of a fable, like less mythic, like you say. And and I wonder what were some of the discussions that went on behind the scenes about what direction to take this story in. It's not like there have been a bunch of television shows about, about um, New York in the 70s during the rise of hip-hop. And that is actually a well. That's part of it. It's not the major part of it. There's, there's, a, it's, it's, it's. It almost reminds me more of something like the Warriors or Streets of Fire. Right. I think you know when you have Baz, you're gonna have a show that reflects 
him, you know, and to some degree me as well. If we had wanted to make a sort of uh, a, a grittier examination, you know, that would be for like David Simon. You right. know, it's like Bass could never make to wire. You know, they, they, at the beginning when they were pitching it, you know, we, they were saying, like, it's the wire meets Glee. You know, and I was like, that's not stupid. But, but I sort of know, I sort of know what they mean. Uh, David Simon is David Simon. You know, Baz is Baz. And the problem is when you first start, it's like the subject is so deep, so vast, and there's so many ways that you can go. And there's also so many ways that you can go that are going to be completely wrong. So you feel the pressure of, like, which path do you choose, and then you also feel, to some degree, the pressure of, like, don't choose a bad path, for better or worse, whether it's a good show or a bad show. I think what we did was we, we tried to go with our strengths. Nobody can do what Baz can do with, you know, with, with music and dance. That's his thing. You know, uh, I write, you know, more from, like, a, you know, a personal place of, you know, and New York-type characters and, and uh, characters who are hard-edged but have some gentility to them, you know, like, that's what I do. You know, uh, Nelson George is, you know, basically a historian of hip-hop and the city, you know, and he brings a, a sensibility that's, like, measured from having been both, you know, in the back rooms when hip-hop was created and, you know, in City Hall interviewing politicians, so... I think at the end of the day, you just, we try to meld the strengths. You know, I think some of the reviews have said it's a unwieldy at times and searching for itself. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't disagree. I mean, I think we were searching, but always trying to lead with our hearts and, uh, and, 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 you know, with some collective brain power and, and lead with the strengths. There was that variety piece about how, you know, this was a long, process you you went through a couple showrunners how did all the all the issues with production affect things creatively was there a point where you had to change the course in terms of where the story was going did you have moments where you weren't sure if the show would come together well i think that we always believed that the show would come together at the end of the day i mean a lot of crazy things would happen but at the end of the day at two in the morning you know in in baz's office and we would be sitting down talking, and, and we would constantly find the, find our second wind, our third wind, our fourth wind. Um, you know, part of the reason that 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 the show uh, was delayed so long was we started out in Los Angeles. The first year, the writers' room was in Los Angeles, and Baz was not in Los Angeles. And um, you know, that was a decision that I didn't have any control over. You know, Baz didn't really have any control over at the time. But, you know, it became clear pretty quickly that it's not going to work in Los Angeles. I, I was going to say, that seems I don't think I would have done the show if Bass had told me we're going to do it in Los Angeles. Bass told me we're going to make this in New York, you know. I just went out to L.A. because I thought, well, that's where we're starting. You know, so that's a year, you know. We got some good stuff out of it, and Sean Ryan is an amazing guy and an uh, amazing writer and a real leader, but it's a different sensibility between Baz and Sean Ryan. It's very hard to find a middle, you know, um, but that's how it worked out, you know. Uh, so then once we got to New York, things moved faster, you know, and Tom Kelly came in, who again, 
It was amazing. And I owe a lot of debt to you. I learned a lot from that guy in a really short time. And then lastly, you know, truthfully, if you hire Baz Luhrmann to do a TV series and you don't expect that it's going to take a long time and it's probably going to take more money than you think, then you're crazy. <laughs> you know, and I'm not using it, you know, it's not a, you know, I'm not, it's not an excuse or a justification, but it's like, uh, you know, if you buy a, a, a Honda or a Toyota, you know, you know, it's going to get great mileage. It doesn't break down, blah, 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 blah. But for better or worse, if you go out and buy a Ferrari, you can't complain that it costs, you know, $50,000 for a new steering wheel, you know, or that like <laughs> the motor's temper- temperamental, like. That's what you bought. Was the decision to split this season into two parts a difficult one? And what went into that, making that decision? I think that uh, Netflix and Sony, rightfully so, wanted to get something on the air. And that had everything to do with splitting the season in two. And, you know, what's difficult about it was that we were writing it in parts. You know, we, we had a sort of a three-act structure, which then became like a two-act structure with a, you know, with a PS at the end. But, you know, originally we wrote it to all be happening in a row. You know, so where we end part one, it's not exactly like a cliffhanger, you know, and that's a little disappointing to me because if we had known we were splitting it, you know, we could have really made people suffer. And listen, it's a business, and it just meant for us to really buckle down and really focus on the first part. In the beginning, you know, that expression, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You know, I used to be like, yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, I want this to be great, so I'm, I'm sprinting as long as I can. After a while, you realize, like, oh, it really is a marathon. So you have to learn how to pace you know, not just your body, but your emotions. You get caught up in stuff, and, and that, that's, you know, that, that's difficult. You know, when, uh, when, you, when you have an idea for something and, and you're, you're, like, in love with it, and then, you know, they're like, well, we can't shoot that, or, you know, you know or so-and-so is not available. You know, and dealing with that kind of stuff stops and starts. Um, you know, changing the regimes, the showrunners, yes, of course you know, that has bumps. But at the end of the day, it's like, you know, I didn't uh, get an email from Sean Ryan. I didn't get an email from Tom Kelly. I didn't get an email from Sony. I didn't get an email from Netflix. I got an email from Bass. And that's the guy I went to his house to meet. That's the guy I sort of fell in love with. So that's the guy, you know, um, I'm working with. And as long as I feel good about him and he feels good about me, then it's like, stay the course yeah at the end of the day what i realized was like i'm not getting paid to write i'm not getting paid to create i'm not getting paid to work with actors i'm getting paid to put up with all the craziness that happens in between when we can actually do that thing that we love and you know so be it once 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 you can wrap your head around that it's much easier you know Totally. You know, your, your right. description of all this, of this entire process, I'm having flashbacks to, uh, to the stories people told about uh, working on Deadwood. Yeah, not the same. You know, my first job was with David Milch. Oh, um, really? And I got, That's I interesting. Got, uh, 
It was on Big Apple on TBS. It was only six episodes. And I got sort of like David Light. Like, I got I got David, not Light. That's not true. But I got to spend time with David at a point where his life literally depended on, you know, uh, changing a lot of his behaviors. Right. So I think I got a, a, a more sane, a less volatile David. There's only one David Milch. I'm sorry. Like, there's only one. And it's not an, you know, it's not, it's not to excuse the behavior, but there's only one David. And the, believe me, the minute that, you know, HBO or any network or any corporate entity decides that working with David is not worth it creatively or economically, they won't work with him. You know, um, I, what I was saying before was that nowadays, especially in TV shows, they have metrics to, like, figure out profit. You know, before a, a script has even been cast, before you've even shot a pilot. So the, the producing entities of the world, like, they're not stupid. In fact, they're brilliant, and they don't make decisions that are designed to lose money. Um, and it doesn't mean that, yes, of course, I'm not trying to say, like, artists should just be able to do whatever they want. And, you know, no, it's a job like any other job, and you have a responsibility as a human being to observe certain, you know, boundaries. But, you know, again, it's like you get what you pay for. No one else could have made Deadwood in, except for David Melch. You know, he's just a brilliant genius, but he got, you know, oh, what's it called, uh, OCD, and he got, uh, he got a lot of conditions. <laughs> he could just as easily be, no, but, but it's true, you know, yeah. he could just as easily be on Skid Row as he could be making a TV show. And the same thing with that. They're different people, but, you know, Netflix isn't stupid. Tony's not stupid. I know you're focused, obviously, as you've said, on, on the second half of, of this first season, and you don't know for sure whether there will be multiple seasons, but have you started thinking about, say, season two, what a narrative arc for that might look like, or are you still so focused on the first season that you're not there yet? Season one is meant to end, and it may not, but it's meant to end in 79. It's meant to end with the dropping of Rapper's Delight, um, and, then, and then the kids recording something um, that later gets found by by uh, other characters, and then they release they release it as soon, but they kind of go their separate ways. And then season two, like, you would really get, like, you know, the rise of that group, you know, the sort of rise and fall of that, that part of Ezekiel's journey. Um, and that's certainly a full season. And, and in fact, like, my argument, an argument that I've lost so far, is that I really, I really want the show to end in the present. Because I have a notion, and I know Baz agrees with me on this, that there's no point to telling a story about the past unless it tells something about how we're living right now. For example, I just I got hired to uh, adapt Dog Day Afternoon into a play for Warner Brothers. So eventually that might be a play. But part of what I'm wrestling with is like, other than the nostalgia factor, other than, oh, that's fun and that'd be cool, like, you have to be saying something about 2016. Otherwise, it's just a sort of a sentimental journey. And so I feel that, that uh, with our show, you know, when we get to the end, it, it has to say something about where we are and who we are as a people, as a culture, as Americans, you know, uh, right now. And right now is such a 
crazy, fervent, complicated, difficult, interesting time, you know, that, you know, in a perfect world, that's where we would, that's where I'd want to get to. But through the lens of this young kid who grew up with nothing, that ends up with everything, but sort of has nothing again. We'll see what happens, you know? Thank you so much for joining us, Stephen. Thank this you. This was great. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is our director of production and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellafint. I'm Matt Zoller Seitz and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Seitz. And I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. Thanks for listening.